Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. As long as there have been vaccines, there have been parents who have been concerned about getting their kids vaccinated. That is according to Professor Jennifer Reich a sociologist at the University of Colorado, Denver. She has studied parental vaccine hesitancy in great depth. Her book, Calling the Shots Why Parents Reject Vaccines, explores the history of vaccine hesitancy going back to polio, smallpox, measles, and whooping cough. She has interviewed an incredible number of parents, caregivers, health officials, scientists, and others. Her most poignant work is being done in real time right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. She offers keen insight as she examines all the factors, medical, social, and political, as parents decide. Here is that interview. I'm so pleased to have with me today Jennifer Wright, professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the author of the book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. Welcome to Consider This. Thanks so much for having me. Parents' concerns over vaccines is not new. Are you able to trace the roots of parental concerns with vaccines and where it started? You know, we can look back and see that there were seeds of anti-vaccine sentiment as early as the very first smallpox vaccines. That as long as we've had vaccines, we've had questions about their safety and efficacy and parents who express concerns about whether or not they want them for their children. Now, what sort of time frame are we talking about then? How many years ago and, and how did it evolve from there? You know, you know, a lot of people like to point to in the U.S., for example, that the very first smallpox vaccines were used by George Washington to protect his troops, but we know that they were used earlier around the world um, in other contexts around uh, variolation and that vaccines became safer when cowpox was discovered to be as effective as smallpox uh, actual smallpox material and creating immunity. But if we look, you know, if we sort of fast forward, we have to remember that um, until recently, we haven't had very many vaccines available. So, you know, the smallpox vaccine is notable as the first. Um, and in the 1920s, antitoxin for diphtheria was commonly used, but it really wasn't until the polio era that we entered this kind of new generation of vaccines as part of and preventative healthcare the way we do it now. So if we think, you know, really what we can see is that um, there were vaccines and vaccine laws uh, in different places, particularly in the U.S., requiring vaccines as early as smallpox, but most of those actually went away um, for a very long time. And so the polio era was the creation of um, national campaigns to, to find a solution to the virus that causes polio and to protect mostly children who were most affected through the 1960s, new vaccines against measles, mumps, rubella became broadly used and those were became part of, you know, I think a new vaccine era, if you will, sort of the modern era of thinking about um, how do we prevent childhood illnesses 
even those that might not uniformly kill at high numbers, but that are significant to families and can cause disability and discomfort. And so starting after the 1960s, there's an acceleration in vaccine science. And so we get measles, mumps, rubella, and then in the following years, uh, some refinement of the slightly clunky efforts over the years to develop a vaccine against pertussis, which is whooping cough, which is a significant um, threat to very young children, but also um, some changes to new um, to older vaccines like, like whooping cough and then some newer vaccines, um, everything from uh, chickenpox to rotavirus, which is one of the largest killers of children worldwide for that causes dehydration and diarrhea. We can think about um, meningitis vaccines and the um, and as science has gotten better at figuring out vaccine development, uh, the opportunities to develop new kinds of pharmaceutical solutions to childhood illnesses and even illnesses affecting adults has increased. Uh, and it's worth noting that with those increases then has come also some concerns about whether all vaccines are a good idea. So how, did parents, you mentioned parents have been involved and there's been hesitancy uh, from very early on, but how did that evolve from concerns to the kinds of things that we see now, a cohesive movement? Uh, can you trace that evolution as well for us? You know, the earliest vaccine, you know, anti-vaccine movements, even around smallpox, did have some uh, social ties together with leaflets and campaigns. There was efforts in the U.S., for example, through the 1920s to re revise and remove vaccine requirements against smallpox as part of a red scare, part of an anti-communist social movement. We've seen social movements over time, and it's worth noting, you know, here and I think often that vaccines are unique in a couple ways. So vaccines are given to healthy people to prevent the risk of illness, not to actually cure illness. And because of that, it creates really different sorts of questions for their usage. Vaccines have to be exquisitely safe uh, to be acceptable because they're given to healthy people. And that's a really different standard than we see for other pharmaceutical products where you know, we accept some increased risk to cure people because they're already sick. And so the standard for vaccines has always been really high. And that standard has to be stacked against whatever kind of risk there exists against illness and whether that risk is real and important and how it matters to families. So we can see historically that at different eras, there have been different kinds of ebbs and flows in enthusiasm and, re and resistance to vaccines. And that much of that is focused on what's happening contextually, what's happening politically, what's happening socially, what's happening epidemiologically. You know, so polio vaccines, as an example, were in incredibly high demand when they were released. It was very clear, uh, particularly in the US, that wealthy children had better access to vaccines than did low-income children, which drove new kinds of funding efforts and legislation to increase access to vaccines. But even as polio rates began declining, enthusiasm for the vaccine declined also. And so we see this kind of relationship to these multiple factors surrounding vaccines. It's also worth noting that um, although there's always been organized movements against vaccines, they've always been numerically very small. And so we think of it as really only a couple percent of the population at any time that is opposed to vaccines ideologically. And I make that distinction because uh, when we talk about, you know, anti-vaxxers, which is a term I, almost, I never use because it's not how people describe themselves. And so I don't think it really encompasses where people are coming from. But, that, but I have in my research spoken to people who believe vaccines are never necessary 
some who argue they don't really work. I've talked to people who claim that, you know, polio went away by itself and the vaccine just got credit for it. Um, there's absolute outliers around this question, but it's a numerically very small number. And truthfully, we can absorb a very small number of people who don't participate in public health. You know, a couple percent we can do. The challenge is that leading up to the COVID era, in the US, for example, we saw as many as 20 to 30% of American parents expressing a desire to skip vaccines, delay vaccines, um, and who were coming up with schedules of their own design that did not reflect vaccine science, and also were um, rejecting some vaccines altogether as um, because they found them uncompelling. And those people would never describe themselves as anti-vaccine. Instead, what they say is that they don't want these vaccines as recommended in the quantity and timing recommended. And they, they trust their own judgment when it comes to their family more than they trust that of experts. And that's a larger number. So when we get to 20 or 30% of people, they're not against vaccines ideologically, but the outcome might be the same, which is that they and their families may not be fully protected against infectious disease. And we know that that carries consequences for the community. When I was researching this, there was a contrast between, between something called informed choice and being anti-vaccine. Can you explain the difference in perception around this? Absolutely. So. Um, you know, since the 1980s, the organizations that oppose vaccines and what they really oppose is vaccine mandates and requirements for entry into schools or childcare settings or other civic spaces have defined themselves not as opposed to vaccines, but pro parents' rights and pro informed consent. And rhetorically, that's really appealing because all of us are in favor of parents' rights and informed consent in healthcare. And the, the real modern era of those, those movements and that differentiation really came about in the 1980s. And it took the form, uh, it's sort of a libertarian movement against government involvement in healthcare um, when it came to children and vaccines. And it started because there had been um, an early vaccine against pertussis that used a whole cell virus and estimates are that there's about there was about a one in a million chance of a child having developing a seizure disorder, having brain swelling, or sometimes dying from this vaccine. Now, I'll acknowledge that there is robust disagreement in medical journals to this day over whether that was correlation or causation. Um, in my research, I talked to a lot of people who work on vaccine injury lawsuits, and many of them said that at the time that the vaccine was reformulated all of the claims of injury went away and they believe it was true. And so putting aside the correlation causation argument, even if we accept it's true, a small number of children were harmed by a vaccine. The outcome is that that drove parents to begin talking to each other about their concerns. And it makes sense that it started in the 1980s because that was the same time what we had just seen uh, in the prior decade, a robust women's health movement challenging childbirth, challenging patients' rights, we saw the, um, the early phases of social movements around HIV AIDS, acknowledgement and access to medications and dignity in healthcare. We saw a lot of ways that patients began pushing back on medical expertise. And so it makes sense that those early parents who began having conversations in living rooms started asking questions about medical authority and why it was that they were trusting experts without question. 
And that resonated with a lot of other things that were happening culturally at the time, including this increased emphasis on personalized healthcare and personal responsibility when it comes to your health. And so the growth of those conversations really laid the groundwork in, uh, in pretty, um, pretty closely aligned ways to be able to say that parents are the ultimate decision makers when it comes to their kids. And we've seen this in education movements around the same time also, that individuals are responsible themselves for avoiding illness so that they should be jogging or you know, a decade later counting their calories or counting their steps or avoiding carbohydrates or what uh, checking their DNA for underlining familial risk of illness or whatever we've seen since the 1980s till today around this idea that disease is individually manageable and that hard work can mitigate against, in, in, against disease. And the challenge of course with all of that is that none of that applies to infectious disease that infectious disease is beyond individual control, which you're seeing in Ontario right now with Omicron, right? You're seeing it with the rollout of viruses where no matter what individuals do, they can't alone control infectious disease and we are all tied together with infection. But knowing that around infectious disease doesn't actually resonate with the way we talk about what it means to be healthy. And so those kinds of movements really, um, really aligned around these other ideological threads about what does it mean to be a good parent? What does it mean to be a healthy person? What does it mean to take personal responsibility? And those align with a lot of neoliberal initiatives that we've seen um, in the US and Canada and the UK around this time period. They align with a lot of other kinds of themes that tie them together in a way that matches what you know, what actually governments are telling us it means to be a good citizen. Uh, and in, in, in a lot of ways that really did sow the potential for declining enthusiasm and support for vaccines. It's fascinating because when you think about it, this is all happening in the 80s and obtaining information about this uh, type of thing would be very, very different than it is today in the time of COVID. Um, how does information flow and how our ability to access information play into these trends that you're talking about. I mean, there's just so much information now that we can get so readily and some of it's good and some of it's not so good and other that is other types of information that is misleading. So how can parents sort through this and how does that play into the kinds of forces and, and, and cultural and social political forces that are at work? Yeah, the way people access information is really important. Um, and part of that way that that matters is it's the way that they build community. So I think one of the big misunderstandings when we talk about vaccines is that I think there's a dominant view, particularly amongst health professionals and public health agencies, that if only individuals had the correct information, they would make the correct decision. And um that notion that health literacy would explain vaccine hesitancy is a misunderstanding of how people make actual decisions in our lives. You know, I um, am not confused about the lack of nutritional properties of ice cream, and yet it's something I really like, right? I don't think any of us have are, are not clear on uh, whether wine or alcohol or other kinds of consumption decisions we make are nutritional or not. But we're motivated by something else, right? We're motivated by 
uh, a sense sometimes it's of like socializing in community. Sometimes it's a sense of emotional indulgence. Sometimes it's tied to the setting we're in, right? We make decisions on a variety of ways and information is one important factor, but it is not the only factor. And we know that very well when it comes to things like preventative healthcare. And so the idea that like information is everything, I think overstates exactly what we mean by information. Where information is really important though, is that people wanna feel empowered to make decisions that align with their values, their goals, their beliefs, and their community norms. And so they find information to try to make a decision that feels consistent sometimes at a very intuitive level and not necessarily a cerebral one. And so thinking about what does it mean to access information is really important. You know, in the, in the 1980s, when the very first organizations started meeting around uh, opposition to the, to the pertussis vaccine, um, and the pertussis vaccine was given in combination with tetanus and diphtheria, which it still is today, they organized a group called uh, Dissatisfied Parents Together, DPT, as a play on the vaccine. And the way they connected was that there had been an expose on a newscast in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. And after it aired, and it was called Vaccine Roulette, most people identify that as really the start of the anti-vaccine movement in the U.S. in the modern era. And um, and they really uh, saw, a lot of parents saw this, they felt seen for the first time and they called the network and they asked how to get in touch with other parents and the network actually put parents in touch with each other. And those parents began meeting in living rooms to start thinking about how they wanted to make change. And they succeeded in altering federal law. They changed the way that vaccine regulation happens and vaccine safety happens. They created a compensation program to, um, to co financially compensate individuals who participate in vaccines and are somehow harmed by it. Like it was not, they absolutely started their um, significant kind of change uh, that then evolved into other kinds of social movements. So thinking then about, you know, so the, the ability to connect, we can see during smallpox where people were using pamphlets in the streets to try to persuade people. But absolutely um, having technology that allows for information to travel is important but it's also allowed for people to feel connection in different ways. And so, you know, even to think about, you know, COVID feels like we've lived with it forever, but if we think back to March, 2020, we can see examples of how many times um, a documentary called Plandemic that asserted that the COVID pandemic was intentionally planned um, were circulated. I think I received a link to it 30 times in 24 hours as social media companies started to pull it down for because it was untrue. Um, we can think about the way other kinds of information sources travel. And on one hand, I think that the easy, low-hanging fruit that often experts jump to is, oh, people were duped. But I think what's worth acknowledging is when we have a lack of official information, people really looked for other kinds of information. And if we don't have good answers um, that are trustworthy, we look for other sources of information. And often we share information we come across with people we care about because we want them to have information too. And we saw that in the early days of COVID, for example, where information that was untrue was being circulated because there was no official information in circulation. And when we lack official information, informal information will always fill those spaces. And so those kinds of sorts of information, people are gathering information to try to make informed decisions. And experts are absolutely a source of information, 
But we have to remember that so are our friends, our peers, our families, our religious leaders, our community organizations, right? We're looking to a variety of sources of people we see as like us or as similar to us or who value the same things we do to try to make what feels like an important decision when it comes to our health or our children's health. All those factors make so much sense. And yet, um, you know, lay people always like to have a reference to something that sounds or uh, feels like it's advanced science. And you have lay people who are trying to get their heads around, you know, they're reading The Lancet, they're reading, uh, you know, uh, reports that are posted uh, from universities that are peer reviewed and have all kinds of, but again, there's that struggle to understand. Can you help us better understand the impacts of these interplays between our own desire to get information and to understand on our own level and our ability to actually find trustworthy information, information that makes sense to us and the tension between these things. One of the things I was really surprised to learn in the course of my research of talking to parents who reject some or all vaccines is that they're not ignorant or anti-science. They work really hard to make a decision. And one of the ways that I started thinking about this was that everyone I spoke to described themselves as doing their own research. And I took the phrase for granted until um, a colleague of mine pointed out that how they do research is really different than how we do research, um, where you know scientists are trying to create generalizable knowledge um, that can be replicated. And that's really different than how individuals um, say that they're doing research. So I really started thinking about what does it mean when we say we do our own research? And I started realizing how often we all say it when we mean consumer decisions. Like we research a new restaurant or we research an appliance um, or we research a big purchase. And what we mean is that we read online reviews, we talk to people we know, we read consumer reviews, we gather as much information as we can to try to make an informed decision. And that it made me start thinking about the way we've really flattened out the idea of research. Now, I don't, there, it's, it gets really complicated because it's important that individuals have the ability to speak back to researchers and healthcare providers. And I don't ever want anyone to, to hear me speak or read my research and think that I'm suggesting that it's that they have unique control of knowledge because we can look historically also and see the ways that patients pushing back has been really transformational in how healthcare is practiced. We can think about how advocacy organizations um, or patients who have particular illnesses have been able to argue with healthcare providers and provide better care, right? So having the ability of consumers to push back on experts is really important. And this is one of these zones then where it gets really complicated, right? Because to think about what it means we push back on our experience, on the kinds of questions, on the agenda that gets set by researchers, that's really important. That can be different though than the ability to push back on the analyses and the methodologies. Um, and that's where peer review becomes really important, which is to say that, you know, what uh, people who are known as, you know, as epistemic peers who have similar training, similar knowledge backgrounds can evaluate the analytical tools that are used that are not equally available to all of us. One of the things that I think has become really complicated during the COVID era is the increasing frequency with which non-peer reviewed our, um, research is put in the public domain. And so early in the pandemic, there was a large push towards what's known as preprints, articles that have not yet been peer reviewed or published 
to become available because the science was changing so quickly. And the idea that someone we should wait six months for peer reviews to get back and then have something published while the pandemic was killing tens of thousands of people a day for a while, right? That we that was a moment where maybe we could let go of some of the standards of peer review in order to share science as it's evolving. The challenge with that, of course, is that not everything that was released into the into the public sector has held up to peer review after it's been peer reviewed. Um, and even things that uh, we now have a lot of science by, by press release. And some of those things have not really held up when we actually look to the data. And that can, and there, there are opportunities to understand it in context, but I think for many people who don't work within science, it can be really hard to see then why something was retracted from a journal or why something was pulled down from a preprint when it didn't hold up to, it was unreplicatable or it didn't hold up to peer review or it had significant methodological problems in the research design. The challenge at that juncture is that some of us look at that and say, oh good, the scientific enterprise is working as it's intended. And that new knowledge comes because old knowledge is rejected or shown to be wrong. And that's hypothesis generating for new kinds of science. But the flip side is that some look to those same forces and say, it must've been a conspiracy or it must have been corruption that led to that finding being removed. And now I don't trust the systems because the article that found the thing I agreed with has been pulled down and now individuals are trying to evaluate the motivations for those decisions. And we've seen that with some, we've seen that with ivermectin as an example, which is a, you know, anti-parasitic medication that early on looked, there was some promise that perhaps it would work for COVID and it doesn't, uh, and it's been well studied and it doesn't work outside the lab. That's been seen with a lot of suspicion and I think we're going to see that with some of the new COVID medication, antiviral medications that are coming online as well, where the press releases uh, maybe overstated the eff- efficacy of some of those medications. In your research, what do you find are the common reasons given for vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, it's such an important question. You know, the, over, the overarching thing I find at the end of the day is that individuals want to feel seen as, in, as and personalized, right? They want to feel that they are unique, their children are unique, and they want to be seen as unique within healthcare systems. And they see themselves as experts, that parents see themselves overwhelmingly as best able to make decisions for themselves and their children. And that they don't, It's and some trust you know, it's not that they don't trust their pediatricians, but they see the pediatricians as one source of information amongst many. And that most physician encounters are about 15 minutes long, once or twice a year. And that that's just not enough to understand the nuances within families. Getting a little bit more granular, the overarching things I see are that every parent I've spoken with, and this is true, I think for adults making decisions about their own vaccines too, are participating in a process of evaluating risk and benefit. And they're evaluating their perceived risk of infection, which can include the likelihood of infection or exposure, and also the severity of illness should they become infected with a a vaccine-preventable disease. And they're stacking that up against their perceived risks of the vaccine itself. And I will say that if we look at it mathematically, Parents are inclined to overestimate the risk of an adverse reaction and underestimate the risk of infection, but that they see themselves as making this kind of um, individualized decision. And I talk to families that have 
different vaccine schedules for every child in their family based on their perceived risks and benefits. I talked to parents who recognize some vaccines might be more important for girls than boys. Um, so for example, you know, measles and rubella can be devastating for fetal development. So they saw that maybe if their daughter hadn't encountered measles or rubella in childhood, maybe they would seek out a vaccine in adolescence or young adulthood to protect future pregnancies, but they didn't see those vaccines as important for boys even as we can all recognize that boys uh, are often around pregnant women um, and would prevent, you know, and could present a kind of risk. Um, parents frequently pointed to the fact that they didn't think chickenpox was a serious illness and therefore the vaccine against varicella seemed unnecessary. They highlighted different kinds of strategies at different ages um, and the ways that there are more vaccines now than there were a generation ago. There's about twice as many vaccines as there was a generation ago. And that maybe they aren't all equally necessary or equally important. And also maybe there's too many and they question whether that could actually be safe. There's a lot of attention given to autism as a risk of vaccines, you know, following out of some of the um, debunked science from the 1990s. But what I actually heard more often from parents was not necessarily fear of autism, although it did sometimes come up, but I more often heard fear of autoimmune diseases that are hard to explain. So we know at a population level rates of things like uh, multiple sclerosis have increased or lupus have increased and no one's really clear why. I think the leading theories have to do with um, environmental factors and perhaps like increased use of plastics and bioidentical, you know, um, uh, chemicals that that mimic hormones, but um, but there's no real clear answers. And so parents said to me, "Well, how do we know acting on the infant immune system isn't the reason?" And and you know it's really hard to to argue about causality for two events that happened 40 years apart. And so it becomes really hard to reassure. And there, from that perspective, then many parents saw omission is safer than commission that skipping something or waiting to see feels cautious and that if you're not afraid of infection or you don't think your child is the one who will be decimated by measles because you trust in your hard work as a parent around nutrition and, um, and caregiving, then the measles vaccine comes to feel more scary than the disease itself. Over the past few weeks and months, there have been a number of cases in the news where parents are fighting over who has authority to say if a child should get a vaccine or not. In your research, how does that decision-making turn out? Who ultimately, uh, within the family dynamic, is making those decisions about uh, who should be vaccinated, who should not? Yeah, we know from a variety of, of sources that um, healthcare decisions for children are almost entirely the terrain of their mothers. That women take children to the doctor more often. They provide day-to-day -day caregiving. They make nutritional decisions for their children. And, um, you know, it sounds like nutritional decisions are different than healthcare, but what I heard in my research quite a bit was that mothers were working really hard on their children's health to, to replace the need for vaccines. So I heard parents talk about food, breastfeeding, the importance of avoiding chemicals in their homes, all the ways they felt that they could manage their children's health without vaccines, which would render vaccines less important. And those are practices that mothers take most seriously. And it's worth also noting that when children do become sick or children develop a disability, women are almost always held responsible. 
that they are the ones people look to, to ask what they did. Women are now asked what they did wrong during pregnancy to explain a child who has health issues, right? We think of women as responsible for everything that happens with their children, good and bad in ways that fathers are really exempted from. And so mothers take this each and every healthcare decision very seriously because, uh, and I heard this over and over again from mothers I spoke with, they understand that if something goes wrong, they'll be responsible. And also they'll be the ones providing care. There was a time when parents, when they were doing their job, it was within a family unit or in front of their neighbors or in front of a small community. But now with social media, parents are finding themselves facing an entirely different set of influences as to who's watching us as parents. There are suggestions that this creates a higher anxiety, a, a greater sense of pressure. Can you talk a bit about how this cultural shift is impacting these things that you're talking about when women are feeling this pressure and feeling this anxiety and how it's so different from before? I think it's really you know, worth acknowledging that the pressures on what it means to be a good parent have become almost unmanageable for most women. Um, that you know, children's successes and failures are broadly seen as a referendum on the kind of mothering that they had. And that's usually without any acknowledgement that not all families have equal resources with which to accomplish their goals. You can think back, you know, and I think there's a lot of nostalgia for prior generations when children would run outside and play and come home after dark and nobody had a cell phone and nobody knew where they were and neighbors would keep tabs on them. Um, but women were also not subjected to the same kind of health monitoring and surveillance about their own parenting choices. And that ramping up of what I call individualized parenting has really changed the stakes of decisions. And so whether it's about what gets packed in a lunch or who, you know, whether you're home after school when your kids get home, whether you work for wages, whether your kids go to preschool, right? All of these things have become um, arguments about what that means for child development. And those have become um, politicized in ways that I think have just have added pressure on mothers to make good choice, what they believe are the best choices possible. In terms of those information networks, one of the things that's really interesting is that we know one of the best predictors of who doesn't vaccinate their children is the number of people they know who also don't vaccinate their children. So we know vaccine hesitancy clusters socially. And I think that the, the easy assumption is, well, of course, people find people who agree with them, but it's actually more complicated that there's evidence that a parent, for example, who's sympathetic to, or supportive of vaccines, who enrolls their children in a school that has very low vaccine rates, will become more critical about vaccines. And I often heard in my research that women who said they planned on vaccinating their children or maybe they vaccinated their first child sometimes encountered like mother's groups or they encountered other kinds of information of people who were encouraging them to not fully vaccinate their kids or to question experts, to question the world of, of vaccines and that that was really persuasive to them. And so we know it works multiple directions. We also know that when a parent is critical of vaccines and they enter a social situation in which vaccine is the norm or a school with very high vaccine rates that also puts social pressure on them to re-examine their decisions. And it, that it's not unique to vaccines, right? Parents do this all the time. 
They share information about recipes or how to get more vegetables in their kid's diet or what summer camp is enrolling when and what's the best tutoring program, right? Parents share information on a variety of topics. And so it's not surprising that vaccines is another one of those things where parents talk to each other. The anti-vax movement among parents is growing, especially during COVID-19. Can you describe the messaging and explain why it is appealing? I'll just confess that one of the things that happened early in the pandemic when um, in the U.S., for example, uh, President Trump announced Operation Warp Speed as this initiative to develop a vaccine quickly, I became very concerned um, because it wasn't just about the COVID vaccines. What I saw in the making in, I don't know, April 2020 was the possibility that a badly communicated vaccine process would undermine confidence in all vaccines. And that's unfortunately, I think, what's happening. So some of the threads that existed before COVID included distrust of pharmaceutical companies and also distrust of the regulation of those companies. So in other words, uh, people were not convinced that government agencies were adequately evaluating the claims and science of pharmaceutical companies and that were too often um, partnering in ways that we talk about public-private partnerships is a good thing. Um, Operation Warp Speed in the U.S. is an example of literally giving millions and millions of dollars to for-profit company to develop science. And again, you can look at that and say, isn't it great if we fully fund science, we can get, you know, amazing things can happen. You could also look at that and say, how rigorously would the government be regulating that having invested financially in all in, in these processes, right? So it was this opportunity to, where I saw the importance of clear communication about that regulation process and what that was going to mean. And so that's really um, been a challenge. I'd say the other things that are really interesting to think about, and these are the things I spend a lot of time thinking about, is that uh, we don't have a strong culture of vaccines for adults at all. And so, um, you know, in the U.S., vaccine against influenza is recommended for everybody over, uh, you know, even infants, and young children, I know in Canada, the recommendations are different um, where, you know, it's encouraged for adults over, uh, you know, adults who are at higher risk of complication, which means most adults don't get very many vaccines. College students sometimes are asked to participate in meningitis vaccines um, or things that are direct risk. There's new vaccines against shingles, which is a um, holdover from those of us who had chickenpox as children who still have the virus in our bodies. Um, but those vaccines are not widely used. Um, they are, you know, in, in the U.S., 26% of adults got a shingles vaccine, and they're recommended for everyone over the age of 50 here. And so we don't really have a strong culture of adults getting vaccines, which meant that the COVID vaccine rollout was already going to have to overcome that sense of, um, of that challenge, in particular, of convincing adults that they're people who want vaccines and need vaccines. And that was an easy sell for people over 65 or 70 because the data were so clear that they were at the greatest risk of the worst outcomes of infection. And that's also a population that gets flu vaccines, that gets other kinds, gets pneumococcal vaccines. So for healthy working age adults, this was a mismatch to what we already do culturally. Additionally, there were questions about that, back to that risk benefit analysis. So what I saw early on was that, and we're still facing that young adults are the lowest users of COVID vaccines. 
And it's not surprising for all the reasons I heard parents say they didn't want to vaccinate their children also, which is that they're healthy, they have good nutrition, they're not likely to be the ones most decimated by an illness. And in the same way parents explained to me how measles wasn't their biggest concern, we're hearing similar things about COVID vaccines for young adults and now for children as well. And how do, you know, and if children are not the most likely to be the most seriously in, um, affected by COVID infection, why vaccinate them against it? If you're not 100% certain the vaccine is entirely safe and effective. And that same calculation people are engaging in has a great deal, deal to do with how individuals perceive risk and benefit to themselves. So far, we have not seen uh, any protests uh, at schools locally, but we just began doing vaccinations earlier this week. We have seen escalating rhetoric, though, and actions elsewhere where some parents are campaigning under the banner of protecting children. How do you react to some of the messaging and the politicization of COVID vaccines and protocols for kids? For COVID vaccines yes. in particular? Yes. Um, yeah. So it's really COVID vaccines for children are a really interesting question. Um, you know, on one hand, we can say, well, children are most likely to be asymptomatic or have mild illness, and that therefore it's not a priority to vaccinate them. Um, and that that's a, a, a conversation worth having. And it depends what we think is reasonable. You know, COVID is still one of the top 10 killers of children um, in the last year because children don't die. Children very seldomly get hospitalized compared to adults. And so what's our tolerable level to risk is really important to ask. Um, what's also not totally clear if we're gonna think about vaccines as a personal benefit is what's the long story of infection? So it turns out there's many viruses that affect you severely decades after you're infected. Um, so we can think about post-polio syndrome that shows up in later adulthood. Um, measles has an unfortunate complication that can lead to, that's untreat, causes untreatable brain damage that will kill you more than a decade after infection, that can also wipe out your immune system's memory of other viruses. So we know viruses can often act in complicated ways after a person has seemingly recovered, and we don't know about SARS-CoV-2 yet. We are still all learning in real time what the virus is capable of. What we do know is a significant number of children who have seemingly, you know, have, have, are over infection or have recovered are still experiencing some number of symptoms. And that rate seems to be significant for children who experience multi-system inflammation syndrome, which is a complication that requires at least two organs to fail and hospitalization as a diagnostic criteria for that. And MISC, uh, multi-system inflammation syndrome in children, um, has affected thousands of children and uh, a significant number of them are still experiencing symptoms more than six months later. And so we have some real questions to ask. What does it mean when children experience organ failure in childhood? What does that mean for their long-term health? And those are questions that we'll, we'll know the answer to and getting those answers are going to cost us a great deal in terms of lost, lost health for children. All of those answers though, are individual personal benefit answers, right? What's the risk to children and what's the benefit to children? And I think that, that those are important because individuals should know how they are personally benefiting if they're absorbing some risk. But we also have to think about what does it mean if children are part of communities, um, just as it matters that adults are part of communities. 
Um, as an aside, what I'll say is that one of the saddest things for me during the COVID era was how little adults were willing to sacrifice to make sure children were safe and healthy. And that included having access to their schools, right? There was an opportunity to say we could close bars or restaurants or adults could do things differently to make sure children could continue to be in school and learn in person. Um, and that's not what happened. Those were not the decisions that were made. And children are suffering in significant ways. Um, from lost opportunities to, to be together, but also in terms of depression and anxiety that are um, approaching record levels. I also think we have to remember that even if it's not about the infection itself, young people are struggling emotionally and many young people are struggling with the possibility that they could infect people they care about and that they love. And that that is a huge burden that young people have been carrying with them throughout the pandemic. Um, and I talked to young people all the time who can't make decisions about when to go to school or when to come to college classes, when to go home again without feeling like they're introducing new risk to their family. And vaccines are also a kind of containment strategy for those fears. And that's important to acknowledge. But when it comes to infectious disease, we can't solve this solely as a personal benefit. Everyone who wants vaccines should get them. People who don't want them don't. I heard this from parents all the time. If you think vaccines work, you should get them for your kids. My decision, if, you're, if vaccines work, how do my kids present a risk to your kids? And that came up over and over again. And the answers are complicated and also easy because we know vaccines don't work for everybody. Some people can get a vaccine and don't, they don't gain full protection. We know some people cannot be vaccinated because they're too young or they've lost immune memory, or they've experienced a chronic illness that's compromised their immune system. We know that viruses mutate, and we're watching this right now in real time as we're all, and I know Ontario now is up to, I think, four cases as of today of, uh, of Omicron. And thinking about what do new variants mean, and new variants emerge because viruses are able to replicate inside of bodies. And the more we can limit viral replication, the better off we are in protecting against future variants. And so, you know, having a personal strategy for vaccines is not going to get us out of a pandemic and it's not gonna protect everyone in the community unless we acknowledge the ways that we're all tied together and that that's unavoidable. And that's where the governments get to sometimes have a say, which, and when I say governments, it sounds like they're separate, but that's where the people get a say. That's where communities get to say together, whether we have standards to make sure that the most vulnerable among us are also safe. And those are where those conversations occur. Can you give any advice to parents, grandparents, families, and health officials to help them navigate these decisions in the upcoming days and weeks? I think the starting point is that we are all exhausted. Those immunized and those not immunized, we are all tired. And this has been a very hard two years and we are fatigued, we are drained. We've all experienced loss in different ways. Some of, some of us have lost family members and friends. Some of us have lost opportunities. Some of us have lost educational experiences. We've all experienced loss. And it's a hard place to start hard conversations is when everyone's already struggling. What I will say is that no one has ever changed their minds about vaccines when called ignorant, stupid, or anti-science. So that's just not a productive place to start. And often it's really hard uh, if you believe strongly in your perspective to hear where others are coming from. 
But what I find over and over again in my research is that the people who reject vaccines are not doing so out of malice. They're doing so because their examination of their perceptions of the risk and benefit at an individual level have driven them to this this decision. And starting from that place of hearing where they're coming from, hearing what they fear, hearing how they've understood the risks of vaccines against the risk of illness, and having conversations about whether their information is still drawing on the most recent scientific knowledge and what it means to be part of a community can often be persuasive um, in small ways. We also have to acknowledge though that sometimes that uh, individuals should always be entitled and empowered to make their own healthcare decisions, but that may come with consequences. It may come with the inability to attend certain spaces or to see shows or participate in civil society in different ways because sometimes the cost of participation is the protection of those around us, just like we have stop signs and laws for other kinds of public safety that we all have to adhere to even at personal cost. Vaccines and infectious disease prevention are another one of those spaces where individuals have to also consider the risks and benefits for employment and for education and for other spaces, travel, dining, whatever it is uh, to make sure that all members in the community can be safe. Jennifer Reich, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was my pleasure. That was Professor Jennifer Reich, a sociologist at the University of Colorado, Denver. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.